As more consumers turn to e-commerce, Amazon is struggling to keep up with demand. Meanwhile, non-essential retailers are turning to social selling, streaming, and other activities to keep consumers engaged. And this just in, manufacturers in China are reportedly reaching 60 to 80% of pre-pandemic capacity, although demand continues to fall behind the supply as retailers halt production. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, April 13th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Today, we're joined by Ricardo Belmar, Gary Newberry, and AJ Mack. Ricardo is the Senior Director of Global Enterprise Marketing at InfoVista and a retail influencer with 20 years of industry experience focusing on digital transformation. He's also a Rethink Retail Advisor. Gary is one of Canada's top internationally seasoned end-to-end retail supply chain executives. AJ is the founder and CEO of Chain of Demand, a predictive analytics company that uses AI algorithms to minimize inventory risk and maximize margins for retailers. Thank you all for joining today. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for having me. It's great to have each of you. And let's just kick off here with some general thoughts. I want to pass it to Gary first and get your take on the pandemic and any insights you might have specific to the Canadian market, how spending is changing, what retailers are closed. What are you listening to right now? Yeah, well, the uh, pandemic, it kind of has a number of kind of strategies around it about how we reacted as consumers, how we reacted in the retail community, how the government reacted. So there's lots of things going on and they're all acting at different times. So it became sort of public knowledge that there was something going on and something might need to change. And everyone was starting to get a bit worried. So they went out and bought lots of toilet rolls because they saw it on social media and whole areas of stores became vacated, you know, shelves became vacated very quickly. And that triggered a reaction of grocer to say, oh, oh my goodness, you know, we have to do something around it. Let's, and then all, all of a sudden, it, the ones which were like heavily affected by it, which was typically the grocers, you know, pulled in lots of people, the warehouses went to 724 operation, extra shifts and whatever. But in terms of, and, and I reached out to a whole bunch of retail thought leaders to say, okay, I want to examine the components of the supply chain, how this needs to start to be reevaluated. I want the context of this. What do we think? How do we think consumers might react? And what are the kind of time periods over the you know, different levels of confinement, financial risk, et cetera, exposure to COVID-19? How will that impact on consumers mindset and how will that then drive buying habits which will then drive the retailer's response so what what it's kind of flushed out at a very high level is that we've been quite lazy thinking in terms of the supply chain we we like to think that the grocery the food supply chain is very lean and it's been leaned down stock has been removed which allows us to sell stuff at dead cheap prices well, what this has kind of opened up is the fact that our business continuity plans have been quite flawed because nobody actually evaluated the risk by whichever may have caused it, but the risk of borders closed and what mm. happens next. When we single source into Wuhan or China or Vietnam or wherever else it is on an extended geographical basis, what happens when there's a break? in the continuity, what happens, and then extended break in the continuity, what happens next? So I've issued some sort of general advice as to what things that retailers should be doing. And when I talk about retailers, we we announced a, and I'm going to be very Ontario-centric, 
we announced a state of emergency which gave the government powers to demand certain areas of businesses to close down now and certain behaviours of consumers, people, to not go here now or to impose social distancing. Uh, And that's actually been quite effective. Their first attempt at defining an essential retailer or essential business, let's call it that way, uh, was very long. <laughs> and I looked in it and I said, if I was an apparel retailer, I'd be feeling a bit slighted because many of my other categories, they're still, how can that be essential? So I had a big bookstores still open until Sunday last week when big box stores, apart from grocers, were all closed. So you could only be a grocer or a pharmacy and you were essential. Mm-hmm. So that's really focused both the supply chain activity and also open up opportunities for other retailers to continue a revenue stream. So yeah, consumers are still, they're still in this honeymoon period, I think. They've had, it's like fun. We're watching Netflix, we're popping out to the grocers now and again, we're having these cute, funny cues that we have to stand six feet apart. It's great fun. But, you know, if this goes on for another month, two months, it could be three months, who knows? We don't know. That's the uncertainty that's starting, that will start to impact on people's perception of, their perception of time is now going to be quite distorted from a normal routine. Hmm. But they have a honeymoon period. But at some point, it will start to dawn on them. And people who, who, who've who got exposure to Boris Johnson being taken ill, it's like, we may not know anybody that's ill, but we do know, maybe, certainly I do, know the Prime Minister of England or Prime Minister of the UK. Now it's becoming, slowly, it's becoming more real. Right. And now we're probably feeling we're confined. And now we haven't got very much money. Now, how does that play out in terms of consumer behavior? Mm -hmm. Good points, Gary, on the supply chain, the impact to the consumer mindset and some specific things to Ontario, where you're based. AJ, I wanted to pass it to you because we're really interested in how uh, the economy is recovering in Hong Kong and greater China and what you're seeing there. Sure. So in in the past few months, um, particularly in January and February, the overall retail sales in China dropped almost 21% compared to a year ago. But we've seen um, some retailers who have experienced sales reductions of up to 70%. So the, the short answer is that the impact was hugely negative on the different retailers in the nation. Wow, up to 70%. Yes. So you, you can imagine the kind of layoffs that would be required to sustain that kind of business. While the economy is starting to resume activity, overall, I would say consumers are still very cautious about how they spend their yuans because there's still a lot of fear, um, uncertainty about what's going to come next, whether it's going to be subsequent waves of the virus, um, a global recession, which is going to affect everyone, but also their spending power has taken a huge hit. So mm-hmm. people, consumers, they are expecting to have lower incomes in, in the coming year. From a survey of different consumers, only 8% said that they would spend more after the outbreak. So that means 90% are going to either continue to spend the same level, but most of them would say they're going to be more cautious about how they spend their money. Wow. And did you say 90% are cautious? Yeah, it's it's definitely a a major shift in how people, how consumers are going to behave in the coming quarters. Because mm-hmm. there's also been about 8 million people who have lost their jobs in China, and that's only in February. And the numbers 
potentially have gone up since then, you think, significantly? or Yes, for sure. And that doesn't take into account the number of people who are on unpaid leaves. And are you seeing any retailers that have taken interesting tactics or strategies during this time? Is there anyone that stands out? I know it's probably more centered around the grocers, but just in general. I've seen some retailers actually from the U.S. that have been working closely with their supply chains to come up with innovative ways to navigate this crisis. But in in terms of the different retailers in China, a lot of them have been focusing more on e-commerce as well as social selling. So Mm. that's been a trend for a lot of the companies, whether local, I mean, domestic or international brands. It's it's become a, a trend that started with the coronavirus, but I think it would definitely be more of a focus even afterwards. And when you say social selling, do you associate that with influencer marketing or is it separate? Yeah, I would include influencer marketing. Also includes live streaming, which has become very popular in China even before the virus. But now we see even international brands doing more live stream um, events. And I think this will be the way forward for a lot of brands in China. Mm-hmm. And for your company, do you focus at all on on supporting social selling? I know it's probably a bit difficult for companies to have really strong analytics behind social selling at this point. Uh, we do because we do take into account social media data, especially for brands that we work with that sell on e-commerce platforms. So besides tracking the e-commerce data, we also track how different events that they may be hosting or different social media posts that they have been posting online and how all that relates to the different effects on sales. Mm -hmm. Because I do wonder if many companies have those capabilities in place just yet. Now would be a great time to have them. Are you going out, AJ? Uh, Are you back to business as usual or are you still, are you and your family kind of um, still staying in? We're still staying in. Our team is working from home and we have been for the past few weeks and we expect to do so for the next few weeks until things change, especially how the government determines what companies should be doing. We do have very strict social distancing rules, but that doesn't mean we can't go out and meet our friends, our family, um, have dinner outside. We just have to be cognizant of limiting the number of people that we gather at each time and making sure that we're not too close to other people, other groups in a particular restaurant, for example. Okay. But it sounds like restaurants are back open and people are meeting with within their families and friend circles. Yeah. Great. Well, AJ, thank you. And for everyone listening, AJ is joining late at night his time. So we really appreciate him being on to share some insights from the APAC side. And Ricardo uh, here in US, I wanted to ask if there's anything that you found surprising during the pandemic so far in terms of the impact to retailers? There certainly is a lot happening. Uh, I mean, I I kind of sum this up as this is becoming a tale of extremes where you've got uh, obviously an unpredictable environment. It's not, you can't pick any element of this that you can safely say any retailer could have planned for at this point. And I'd say that's true, whether it's large retailers or small, down to small independent retailers, everyone's having a challenge here particularly when you've got, uh, I think it was just realizing the other day that a lot of things have been posted about the off-price apparel stores and how, you know, when we come out the other side of this, they're just going to have this bonanza of ability to buy so much discounted apparel that 
manufacturing brands are going to need to get rid of somehow to decrease inventory or that department stores won't have a use for. But then I just noticed, uh, for example, the latest note from TJX's CEO that they've not only shut down their stores, but all of their distribution centers are currently shut down so that they're not asking any of their employees to risk coming to work for the near term, which mm-hmm. you know has the side effect, right? That means their sales are down to zero. Right. Uh, now, granted, they were not a very large e-commerce uh, set of brands to begin with. Marshall's only just started theirs last year. I think they have home goods. They have, I think they claim uh, three of their brands have e-commerce sites. So it wasn't a big percentage to begin with, but they're facing a reality of, at least for now, zero sales. So how do they come out of that? And what's their ability going to be to then look at a market that's looking to them and saying, hey, we've got all this great inventory from you. Will they be able to ingest that into their own distribution or are they just going to have to be choosier about what kind of merchandise they pick up, which may have an uplift in and of itself. But that then leads you to the discussions uh, I'm sure we've all seen plenty of in, in social media is, is there really going to be a pent up consumer demand a few months from now? Or are lost sales just that, lost sales? I'm in the camp really that a lot of these things where we're asking the question, will there be pent up demand? It's seasonal in nature to begin with. So the fact is if we were essentially skipping a season on the apparel market right now. So if we come out of this and we're, we're after, it's after spring, are you still going to be suddenly in the mood to buy a lot of spring clothing? For most consumers, probably not. Yeah, so I, I really think that lost sales are lost sales. And it's going to be more a question of what of this can brands save for a year? You know, Can they bring it back out and it still be all right next spring? I expect we'll see a fair amount of that. And then when you get down to the level of independent retailers or restaurants, for example, I have been impressed with some of the creativity that's starting to show up. Uh, just today, I was reading about restaurants who are kind of turning into these sort of pop-up grocery locations because I originally hadn't seen a lot of talk about this, but if you think about the restaurant industry, there's a lot of food supply chain there that's dedicated to restaurants. That's not the same people distributing food products into what consumers have access to. Well, with restaurants closed for dine-in, there's a lot of supply that's potentially going to go to waste if it's not moved in a different way. So you can see restaurants trying to turn things around. In some cases, I saw partnerships with HEB, a grocery store where they're taking things from their menu and repackaging them for sale in the grocery store. So at least at a local level, people who are familiar with those restaurant brands can still find those menu items at the grocery store. And then the restaurants themselves taking things and taking some of that product and converting it to just pure grocery sales on makeshift tables they may set up out front outside uh, the restaurant itself. So I think a lot of creativity around controlling ways. How can I keep those lines of communications with consumers and customers? Uh, th- those are the things that have been impressed me the most. And then probably also that we haven't had enough discussion, I think, about what this trickle-down effect is going to be into the supply chain and into the manufacturing of all these products that we're also used to seeing all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's a great segue because we're going to dive a little bit deeper into the supply chain next with some news. So last week, Nestle CEO Mark Schneider warned that the business must get ready for a big storm. He mentioned supply chain challenges that are expected to intensify amid this global pandemic. And in the U.S., there was uh, the Institute for Supply Chain Management. They put out a survey last month revealing that nearly 75% of companies are experiencing supply chain disruptions due to transportation restrictions related to COVID-19. So there's a lot of supply chain problems being reported that maybe weren't uh, just a month ago. So I wanted to throw the question out there. 
What challenges are retailers facing because of this? Um, are these long lasting? Are there changes that they need to be making? If I can um, just jump straight in, because sure. I think retailers and businesses in general benefited from people who are really good at moving things around fast. I mean, the whole supply chain is supported by a, a bunches of people normally in silos doing logistical things. So there'd be people placing orders on suppliers. There are people in suppliers sending orders to the manufacturing plants and stuff like that. And people in the warehouse picking stuff, putting them on trucks. So, But we don't always get the picture of it's a horizontal process and it should be really joined up. So if I'm an average typical retailer, the only time I come into contact with supply chain is when it goes wrong. So I'm running a promotion. They haven't got the stock in place. It's not in my stores for sale. It's in the flyer, but the stock's not on a shelf. And I run down to the warehouse and say, get it fixed. And, and some, you know, the guys in the warehouse go, right, okay, order a truck, get to a supplier. And I'm running around like, like crazy people, headless chickens almost, because they're brilliant at firefighting. That's, that's one of their, how would say, benefits, but it's a double-edged sword because they fix things a lot. It kind of disguises the fragility of overall structure, the scope of a supply chain. And that's another thing that the retailer won't see the whole size of a supply chain because it partitions parts of it into different parts of the business. So in merchandising, you may have a replan team. That's actually supply chain. That's all part of this process for getting stuff to the shelf or into the customer's hand at a residential address. So what would trigger a reinvention of supply chain if it isn't COVID? Well, if we just follow that same pattern and think on a day-to-day basis, they run down to the warehouse and point the finger and shout at somebody and it gets done. So this is just a, a bigger version of that. Is it big enough for people to say, oops, I haven't really understood this thing. I haven't really had much of an interest. I just go down and shout and point the figure and things get done. My shelves get full. But at the moment, my shelves aren't getting full. Is it those bonker people in the supply chain just aren't very good at what we need them to do? And I think there's a sort of like a paradigm shift that retailers have to go through, which says, okay, the world has been formed since 1927 based on this guy called Paul Mazar that the only things that count in, in retailing are stores and merchandise and everything else is peripheral. It just gets done somehow. What I'm seeing or what I think about as I think of and reflect on this, there's two important functions. There's the supply chain, if we can actually see it and scope it properly, and marketing because it's marketing's job to actually reposition ourselves so that our supply chain, our ability to deliver value to the customer through giving them, and I'm talking about bricks and mortar now, providing the product to them wherever they want it, at home, at point of convenience, click and collect, or in store. We need to realign that whole thinking process. Now, which retailer is going to put their hand up? It's like a turkey voting for Christmas. Which one is actually going to say, I've got this wrong. You know, I've been in retail for 30 or 40 years. I've fundamentally not understood this world. And COVID is a great thing that's made me have this revelation. Now, I don't think you're going to find that. And as a result of that, I think that when we think about redesign of a supply chain function or activity or stream or value stream, if we could call it what it is, I don't think it's going to be a much of an appetite. It's going to be get over the hill of COVID-19 and go back 
kind of try and recede back to some kind of version of normal mm. and still not deal with the issues that they've never dealt with because they've got no interest, not paying attention, or they don't understand. And it's a bit like digital transformation. I don't really understand. It's something that those bright young things down in the IT department kind of do in for us. I know it's something to do with a website and stuff, and we're digitally transforming. Brilliant. But when we think about the supply chain, I think the same level of apprehension, lack of knowledge, or you know, the fear of actually dipping and going, oh, I didn't realise. Well, you know, they're not inclined to want to do that because it will expose the paradigm they've been living with for many, many years and have been rewarded for having that paradigm for a long time. So my thought is that I'd love a retailer to put their hand up and said, we've got it wrong. Well, we're not we've got it wrong. We know where we've got to move and we've got to tra- physically transform this whole thing, this whole thing we call uh, retailing into something new that's going to be fit and proper for the new world we're facing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I like how you mentioned the, the paradigm shift and how it's going to be difficult for a lot of retailers to admit that they need to focus on this. So the point where the current crisis is going to force a lot of retailers to look deeply into their supply chain is a very good thing. So the COVID-19 situation has exposed just how globally connected all of the supply chains are. So in about a month ago, we saw that there were a lot of retailers trying to move their orders out of China and move it to their other suppliers in Southeast Asia or even Eastern Europe. But what they found is that because a lot of the raw materials may be coming from China, trims might be coming from China, they're also having difficulty to deliver on the goods or the POs that have been placed by the retailers. So that is in line with the statistics that you gave from the ISM survey about a month ago. But what we've seen in the past two weeks is that China's production capacity has gone back up to about 60 to 80% of the original capacity. And what we're seeing now is that retailers are actually trying to cancel as many orders as they can. They're Chinese suppliers. So now we have another issue. It's not the fact that the Chinese supply chain cannot deliver the goods. It's because there's now a greater supply than demand. Wow, 60 to 80% back at the original capacity, and yet... They're being pushed down a bit because of the supply dropping and retailers pausing orders, it sounds like. There's a lot of retailers, especially even in in Europe and the US, that are trying to cancel orders left and right. And I think it's just a ping pong effect where the supply chain was hit and supply was below demand. But now that the virus has hit the demand side, the situation has changed to where there's not enough demand for the supply that has been recovered in the past few weeks. And what are some strategies to solve this down the road in a, in a few months when, I want to say a few months, but whenever things get back to, to normal, is there going to be, we talked about there's probably not going to be pent up demand specifically for apparel. Are there other categories that are safer? In terms of what retailers can do, we always, we have been recommending them to work closely, more closely with their supply chains. I think. So far, that is the best way to get through this crisis together, working with your suppliers as a partner instead of trying to cancel the orders or to delay payments or to ask for 
extend the payment terms because that would just force your suppliers into bankruptcy and for them to shut down. So what, mm-hmm. one of the more innovative solutions that we've heard is that for fabrics that aren't cut, the retailers asking their suppliers to change short sleeve t-shirts into long sleeves. So they can then still keep the orders that were placed, but basically transforming them into goods that could be sold for the fall winter season. So these are some of maybe the short term actions that retailers could be taking to not not further disrupt the supply chain and the suppliers they're working with out of out of China or other regions. Yeah, I think that's just one example of what could come out of a closer collaboration with the supply chain. There is definitely going to be a lot more other examples of creative solutions, but the prerequisite is that you have an open channel with the suppliers and a mentality that you want to work together to get through this. And I think that is the only way for the industry to get through this. As you talk to your colleagues uh, out there, uh, AJ, do you think that the threat of localized production, the switch from the very extended supply chain, and uh, probably come back to some of my views around that, to a much more localized solution, which is more responsive, uh, shorter lead times, etc. Say in Canada, certainly in Ontario, the Premier of Ontario is very pro getting our manufacturing up and going again because it got decimated about 12 years ago, 10 years ago, whenever it was, through a great recession, lots of manufacturers just went by the wayside. But the manufacturers that survived have very quickly retooled themselves to help with respirators, with PPEs, with you know hand sanitizers and stuff. They just said, right, okay, this is what we're going to do. Within a week, they're retooled and they're producing. And the fact that they can do that would also indicate that they'd be willing to do more, probably build more capacity set up more factories to do more things that people in Canada want to do, which would displace the demand of products coming from China, or the, at least the finished goods, if not more of the elements of the supply chain. Sure. I think one of the effects that we see coming out of this virus in terms of supply chain is that retailers and companies will focus more on speed-to-market production lines. So that's where, you know, producing closer to where your market is, is going to have a huge benefit. The difficulty in that is the time that it would take to move a certain percentage of your production away from the Far East and back to a localized production facility. The second issue would be the price and the cost. It always comes down to the price where producing from far east gives you a cost advantage, but it may take longer. So it's going to be that balance of costing that retailers will have to do to optimize the percentage that they produce onshore and offshore. Could I just step in here and just say that you know, 20 or 30 years ago, 10 years ago, when production was done more locally and a retailer was given a bill for local production and then their purchasing team went off and said, oh, I can do it for 10% of that cost. And when we just look at that comparison, of course, why wouldn't we shift production? Just, you know, stop using that local supplier and go to that one over there kind of thing because it's cheap. It's a lot cheaper. And our financial systems reward that kind of perspective on numbers. But when we think about this situation we've been in, borders closed and all of a sudden we're exposed we can't get hold of what we need when we need it. And then we start to think about how much inventory we've got invested in this supply chain. We think we've leaned down, but actually we've got a pipeline of you know four, 
six, seven, 12 weeks, maybe. So something that happens today, some trend I want to deal with today, I've now got to put my POs and send them across there. And it could be 12 weeks before I can respond to that. Mm -hmm. And yet if I had a local supplier who was capable and flexible, I could say, look, sync's going on in my market. Can you do sync tomorrow? And I say, yeah. Can you get it straight to the residential address? Yeah, I can do that as well. So I'm suddenly speeding up the thing. I'm maybe building sales, which when we look at the whole business case, not just the like one invoice compared to another, we actually look at the whole scenario, take a holistic view on this. We may actually find that there's benefits in, you know, as you say, onshoring or making it somewhere maybe within North America because there must be lots of factories with capacity that can gear up to do things relatively quickly versus, you know, thinking about taking the plants across, installing them, creating a little kind of ecosystem around that. Because I know that Obama said it, even if we wanted to come out of China, it would take us two years just to set up a factory. And set. It's not the factory. That's the easy thing. That can be done in the week. But the actual infrastructure around that to feed that factory will take another two years beyond that to get up and running. But I don't think we need to be that purist about this i think we need to see what's possible with what we've got take bits of it and realize this is a longer term project i kind of think too that what if there's positives to come out of this right there may be three things that have come to light in my mind uh, one is this level of detail that's now being paid to supply chain in general right how many times can you remember in the past having such broad discussions and detailed analysis of the supply chain. I think to Gary, to your point, right, when retailers thought this before, it was just something that worked. You know, I knew if I pushed a button somewhere, the supply chain guys, whoever they were, took care of it. And now there's a renewed interest. I guess I shouldn't even say renewed. There's a new interest in really deeply understanding intricate detail, all aspects of that supply chain. And what's interesting to me, I think as well, is that now this isn't just within people that are industry insiders, and it's not just within these organizations, that even consumers, public at large, has this new level of understanding of what a supply chain means and just how complex today's modern global supply chain really is. I think there have historically been a lot of assumptions that people may be incorrectly made about how simple it was. So again, you know, what Gary just said, right, it's, it's not the hard part isn't necessarily putting up the factory. Sure, there are some aspects about tooling it and how investments made and how the actual production lines work versus today versus even five years ago. But it's everything that surrounds it and feeds into it, which are all moving parts in this intricate supply chain that few people really had a detailed understanding of before. So I think that's a positive that has come to light that more people will now have an understanding of what this supply chain is like. And it's not a matter of answering questions that people may have thought were simple to answer before. You know, does it need to be you know, localized, you know, have we gone too far at offshoring production? Those aren't really the questions, right, that we need to be asking. It's more a question of how are we using the resources that are there? Certain parts of the world have better expertise today than other parts of the world at different parts of the supply chain overall. And everyone now has an interest in finding the best way to use those components to accomplish the moving of the right types of goods when needed. And it's not just as simple as saying, do I produce it over there? Do I produce it over here? Those are simplistic questions that aren't aren't the right ones to ask. And then along those lines, I think, too, the other things that have come from this is this sense of agility, right? We weren't talking before about how agile can we make these changes, 
right? And I think we've all just, just kind of gone through this in the discussion is, do I need to take these POs that I've placed in one country with one supplier and suddenly do I have to reallocate them elsewhere? How quickly can I do that? I don't think enough people were thinking of those things before because no one envisioned having this extreme level of, of challenges in their supply chain before. And you know, we typically use apparel industry as an example, but I'm, I'm even thinking of other areas, even home goods, for example, which very often are made in various different parts of the world with raw materials that come from other parts of the world. That's another area where much like apparel has to gain some agility now in being able to second source in different areas. And I think that's a, another conversation that wasn't happening before that's a positive one that will come out of this process. Mm-hmm. And then maybe the, I think the, I'd say the third piece that's been important here is just around communication. Uh, I mean, Gary, I think you, you hinted at this too, right? That it, there's a new level of communication that's happening now between different previously siloed parts of a retailer's organization that relate now into the supply chain that need extra visibility. Uh, and I think those types of uh, discussions and communication will change. And then also, of course, with communication to those suppliers and farther and farther in, deeper into the supply chain, there is more levels of communication that have to be extended now in order to have the agility that you need to be so adaptable. And I think all these things are areas that will improve now coming out of this that people hadn't really been thinking about previously. To Gary and Ricardo's <laughs> points, I couldn't agree with you guys more. I think the one of the biggest hurdles in moving production away from China is the infrastructure that it has built over the past 20, 30 years. Now, when we talk about the possibility of onshoring again, it will come down to the communication and a healthy mix of whether raw materials would be produced offshore and holding those fabrics in your onshore factories so you can be very agile and to produce on demand and increase your, your, your time to market. I think that may be one of the benefits of the current crisis where we start to look at how we can balance onshore and offshoring to give businesses the highest agility into responding to varying demands and fast-changing consumer demands as well. It's really not about just the FOB costs, as Gary mentioned. We are strong supporters of looking at the whole business and looking at the total value costs of everything you're producing. So besides the FOB cost is actually just you know, 5 or 10% of the total cost of each item. The biggest cost is your holding cost, your, your markdown cost. Those costs arise when you have an imbalance of inventory compared to demand. So when companies start to explore this issue in more detail, we hope that they will be looking on a more holistic view, which includes the different cost benefits in getting your goods at maybe a higher FOB, but because you can fulfill consumer demand quicker, you also improve your margins. One of the things that will really facilitate this kind of transition is data. It's really because, especially in the fashion or apparel industry, where data is not connected between demand and supply chains, suppliers and retailers aren't able to come together and say, okay, this is the best plan of attack. We should be making these kind of fabrics because of predicted demand for this retailer in this region in this particular season. When you have transparency with data, then there's a lot of things that you can do and it makes everybody that's within the ecosystem more comfortable in holding fabric or holding raw materials or preserving 
production capacity for a specific time or a specific retailer. And that's maybe why di- direct to consumer is in a bit of a better position, perhaps, than department stores right now. Would you guys say that? I would say maybe it depends on the product category. I think even there, it's going to vary. I mean, there's, there's no question to be department stores have a, an even bigger challenge than they already had coming into this crisis, uh, especially the ones like Kohl's, Macy's, for example, are so heavily dependent on apparel. I think at the same time, a lot of the DTCs, I'm not sure that they're coming out that much better. Really, I, I do think depends on the product type and the category, particularly if it's a product category where there are only a handful of DTCs. Maybe they, in some of these categories, there's been an explosion, right? And there may be 20 of them. Mm-hmm. I, I think those more competitive ones, I think they're going to struggle a little more. And then it also still comes down to, depending on that product category, where is it being manufactured? Where were the raw materials coming? I, I think there, there's no doubt that this whole virus is, is disrupting them now, just as they were disrupting their category leader before them. So mm-hmm. it's going to be interesting, I think, to see. I, I don't think I would make a prediction as to how these DTCs will come out as compared to department stores. I think the easy prediction is that department stores are going to be even more challenged than before. I don't think anyone's likely to debate that one. You know, maybe interesting to debate who's better positioned than others right. within department stores. There are a lot of factors there um, just based on their, their financials coming into the crisis. But I don't think there's a clear winner out of those. In terms of a comparison between DTCs and department stores, they definitely both suffer from the same supply chain issues. Mm-hmm given the current coronavirus. The one thing I would say that DTC has an advantage on department stores is that they have a lot more data to work with in determining the demand for their products. Because they're online, they can track the Google Analytics data, who's looking at what in a much faster fashion than department stores. The demand side would definitely give DTCs an advantage over department stores. And the second thing with department stores is that they have a much larger burden from the retail spaces that they operate. So I think in terms of supply chain, yes, everyone is on the same playing field. But in terms of having the data and knowing what to produce, what decisions to make in terms of placing inventory, DTCs, would have a advantage over department stores. Good perspectives, AJ. Thank you for adding that. Interesting to hear from you guys that you think everyone's on the same playing field from supply chain. So that's a really good insight. I wanted to hop on to the last subject just really quickly because Amazon Prime is doing something they've never done before to keep up with demand for essential items. They are no longer offering the one and two day delivery for its Prime members uh, for non-essentials because of the pandemic. And a lot of people are saying perhaps this is an opportunity for other non-essential retailers that are not Amazon to break into the BOPUS model and click and collect services. Do you guys agree with that? Is this an opportunity? I mean, there's the whole thing of consumer demand being down in general. Yeah, I mean, I do think there maybe is an opportunity there. You know, from my view, this was probably a great moment for Amazon to shine coming in to the pandemic. And I'm not so sure I'd say they have. I mean, I've seen plenty of, of reports and stories, and sure, they're, they're anecdotal, but I think it's enough of them to be meaningful that the way they've handled this hasn't been the best. Even if you look at it strictly from a PR point of view, they've gotten plenty of bad press on, on a lot of things that either are doing or are not doing. Um, now, now, granted, that happens a lot when you end up becoming this leader. You get people to really look at you under a, a microscope, <laughs> and they're, they're looking for things to be negative. But 
you know, if you think about what, what has Amazon been strong at, they, they have historically been strong at communicating things in a positive way. I mean, they are, in a sense, right, masters at spinning things to make it look like whatever it is they're doing has a positive benefit and outcome. I'm not so sure they did that. I think if anything, that you know, this is an example where everyone's susceptible, right, to making a mistake here. Because timing is everything with, with this, you know, making, being agile enough to make the right moves. I, I think they made the right move to try to focus on these essential product categories to make sure that those they can ship out as quickly as necessary. I think that the volumes that they probably ended up facing with these specific categories and items were volumes that they just were not set up to handle. I think at the end of the day, where does Amazon shine? It's the ability to move an incredibly wide variety of goods in individually low volumes at a high speed and to get them to customers. Now, what are they being asked to do? They're being asked to focus on a relatively small number of items at very high volumes to an equally high number of customers. Uh, I'm not sure their distribution was really optimized for that. And I, I think, you know, maybe they deserve a little bit of credit here for trying to move quickly enough to do that and make, making the decision that, you know what, there are just product types that we don't have to prioritize. They're not essential right now. It's okay for them to be delayed. And that's why now, you know, you go to a, a web page on their site and you see delivery dates of April 29th or later. So I think it was a smart move to do that. But then, you know, you've also got the other things that they've gotten the bad press about on how they're handling their workforce. Workforce has, has gotten almost, I'd say, as much attention as supply chains during this crisis. And while you, you maybe can give Amazon some credit and how they've moved quickly to, to handle the supply chain side of it and the distribution changes, maybe not so much on the workforce side, uh, which to me is just uncharacteristic of them. So I would say when you take all of those things, yeah, there is an opportunity. I, I think Walmart's been leveraging the opportunity to some extent. I just saw today, a, uh, I think it was a first quarter 2020 report from eMarketer about who's in the top 10 on e-commerce. And I think Walmart moved up the list. Target entered the top 10 for the first time mm. in that list. I mean, obviously, Amazon's still at the top. I think all of these things aren't necessarily going to hurt them in a way that's going to cause them to lose a lot of market share. But if anyone had an opportunity to gain share, it was probably Amazon out of this. And I suspect that when we look back afterwards at who gained, Amazon probably came out around the same level as they came into it. And everybody else started gaining at their expense, most likely. Yeah, I think that's a really great analysis, almost cold analysis of what's going on. Um, speaking as a consumer, I do all my impulse shopping on Amazon. I don't go to the stores to do that. I do it on Amazon because you can just look for anything and say, oh, look, there's something I didn't know I needed. I better buy that. And all the way up until about two weeks ago, I was still achieving next day service. And all of a sudden, it went to next month. And it's like... What happened? And things that were freely available suddenly became thing going. Yeah. Yeah, unavailable. And then it might be back in stock. And if you place your order, it'd be like, who knows when? So it took me a couple of days to kind of reflect on that. And then the changes in Ontario started to be announced about a restriction in who is a essential retailer. And I realized all the big box stores would be closed and I thought, well, some of them have got already ex existing click and collect uh, uh, solutions already in place. It's not a, like a mad scramble to do this. So I placed an order with one of our local providers, Canadian Tire, Home Depot, Lowe's. And the experience has been absolute, not, not just bad. And you kind of give them a bit of a, don't worry, it's a mad scramble. It's actually bad, appallingly bad. I ordered some basic building materials from Lowe's on Tuesday. I still haven't got them. And I'm meant to be building today, so it's crazy. 
So I contacted the local, one of our sort of internal to Canada magazines that goes out to the whole retail industry and said, look, this is so on topic. My experience should guide us that this is a golden opportunity. If we said a month ago, Amazon are going to be in in a situation, let's not call it trouble, but in a situation that they're not, they're going to say to customers who they've been delivering next day to, it's going to be a month away. Those people are going to want to find their needs met for relatively essential things from you guys, our Canadian retailers. So my experience informed me that we're not very good at even click and collect. Then I said, well, if the customers aren't able to come into the store, we have a great opportunity for the stores to use as much space in the store as they want, but the stock should be static. So I can do a big stock count and actually put that up onto the internet and say, here you are, that's our precise, or as close to precise stock position. So if we've got six on the shelf, we think we probably have got six on the shelf, not four in Mrs. Jones's basket yet to go through the till. So I did a, a podcast with a colleague and, and uh, the, the editor of uh, Retail Insider, and I would encourage anybody to go and listen to it if you're in Canada, because there is such a great opportunity for them to win here and to get ahead of Amazon. Because, all right, Amazon do the convenience of doing it to your doorstep. But many people in Canada, we're still kind of like going to the stores. You know, I've been in here seven, eight years, and I still can't get over the paradigm. They like going to the stores. They like the flyer. They like going to the stores. They still think the flyer informs purchasing decisions. So if that's the case, and retailers want to continue to build loyalty and have a revenue stream through this period, they must crack like the code of click and collect. It can't be that difficult. I know it's not that difficult, but the way that they've presented them, those three retailers, and I, I'm not isolating them, it's just my three attempts to use a click and collect service. This must be widespread across Canada. The people who run these, I mean, Lowe's, Home Depot, large companies, they know how to do these things. Canadian tar, they've got apparently world-class systems. But when it comes, to, when the rubber hits the road, appalling, terrible performance. And I've been trying to coin a phrase that when you put your brand entirely online, when you've previously really done most of your sales in-store, you're putting your brand on the line. You know, that experience I had with Canadian Tire, I, I go there every week and buy my spanners and stuff. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to do that again. If they treat me like that, why should I bother? I can go on to Amazon when, when they get back. <laughs> so this is a great opportunity for Canadian retailers and any other retailers who have kind of said, well, you know, most of our store sales are in store. Oh, we have to do this thing. Oh, now it's our own revenue stream because we're not going to really do home delivery. Certainly not in Canada. It won't make sense. But we have to crack this, bring them to the stores, big logo out there, getting out in front of this, revenue stream, keeping people employed who would normally have to be sent home and go on government assistance. So this is like a win, 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 win all over the place. And it's only because Amazon have taken a month, effectively a month off and allowed the Canadian mm -hmm. retailers to stream in there and go, look, we can do this. We can, we can make this work for, for our customers. We can do something here. We can win. And uh, that, that's my message. Absolutely. And just out of curiosity, because it sounds like, Gary, you've had some experiences not so great. I know I ordered groceries online today through Instacart at Aldi up the road, and it said no click and collect, only delivery. 
earliest we can do is tomorrow, which is better than last time. It was three days ahead. Running a week behind for me. Really? A week? So I was going to ask Ricardo and then AJ, how are your experiences been with ordering online? In, in my, at least for grocery in my area, that's actually pretty recent that uh, Instacart's been doing delivery. Up until recently, we had uh, Wegmans chain that was doing curbside pickup with Instacart. And then the others have only just recently come on. But every time I log in and I've been checking periodically and I hear other people around me doing the same thing, most of the time, but most, I mean, nine out of 10 times that you'll check, it says no times available for you to delivery at at all for pickup. So you basically have to put your order in and wait to get notified when an opening comes up. And it has generally been running about a week behind. If you put it in, you can expect to hear in a week that there's a slot. Now, anecdotally, I was just at a grocery store that, that works through Instacart here just yesterday. And I happened to notice how many Instacart shoppers I saw in the store. And normally, I would have expected to see in about 10 to 12 at any given time that I just run into in any given aisle. I only noticed two yesterday. Mm-hmm. So I do wonder if, at least in my area, if part of the reason for this week-long delay is that there just aren't enough Instacart folks willing to go do the shopping. I think, though, on the flip side to that, our restaurant delivery places are doing great. It's true. <laughs> Absolutely. AJ, what about you in Hong Kong? Are you ordering groceries delivered or click and collect or going to the store? For local deliveries, whether it's uh, within Hong Kong or China, the delivery times have gotten back to normal. Mm-hmm. It is okay. really the orders I've placed on Amazon US that has been telling me you know, two to three weeks for, for deliveries, mm-hmm. which you know, is, is much longer than I hoped. So it is good to see that on this side, the logistics of e-commerce deliveries has been going back to the levels that they were previous to the, the virus happening. And it's especially important because I do order food for my dog online. So I, I cannot <laughs> I cannot accept the, like weak delays for, for that. But overall, I think on this side is going back to normal. I just wish for Amazon to get back to their stellar delivery times as soon as possible. And I think we all do, but it sounds like everyone agrees there is a bit of an opportunity for other retailers, even though some are maybe flopping a little bit on that. So now's a good time to increase their capabilities. I just want to say thank you, AJ, Ricardo, and Gary, for the three of you joining today and discussing some of these topics during this crisis. I really appreciate your insights. Very welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.